0: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 114 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss a single episode. They come out every single Monday and always feature big-name rock stars that found fame in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Now today's episode is our third Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee in the last five episodes. The big names all speak to VRP Rocks. My guest was inducted into the Rock Hall way back in 1996. He also played one of the most iconic cultural events of the 20th century, Woodstock, and at the grand old age of 79 is still touring with his lifelong friend and bandmate, Yoma Kalkinen, as part of Hot Tuna, That's a band that they formed way back in 1969. I am, of course, talking about Jefferson Airplanes' Jack Cassidy. And I mentioned Yorma Kalkin in there. It was funny that during the interview, Yorma phoned Jack, and Jack answered.
1: Well, these are bases that have been developing with um, Tom Brebecky for the last ten years. And, um, of course, it never fails, does it? (laughs) Well, this will be perfect. Yorma. Let me put you on speaker because I'm doing an interview with a gentleman in Scotland right now. We're doing a Zoom interview, so you might as well say hi. All right.
0: I'm driving, but I'd love to say
1: hi. Okay, that's <laughs> good. So I'll, I'll check it. I'll call you later on. Okay. Okay, right. bye. And if you
0: want to hear a bit more from Neil McAlkinen, I did actually interview him a few years ago, and you can hear that and all of his stories on episode 35 of VRP Rocks. Just scroll back through the catalogue to find that one. And quickly, before we hear more from Jack Cassidy, some exciting news. VRP Rocks is now available as a radio station 24-7. Over the last few months, I've spent a lot of time carefully building an online radio station, a classic rock station, in keeping with the podcast, all the music from the 60s, 70s and 80s. But it's not like your usual classic rock station. No, no, no. I have manually loaded the songs myself. There's more than 900 on there so far, and I can promise you won't hear the overplayed songs that you hear everywhere else not here on vrp rocks radio there's no more stairway to heaven or smoke on the water or bohemian rhapsody no 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 vrp rocks plays deep cuts and classic hits there's so much great music that you know regular classic rock radio ignores and that's what i've tried to address with vrp rocks radio there's some forgotten gems there's album tracks b-sides from legendary bands plus music from bands that have slipped from view as well You're going to hear songs that you won't expect to hear on the radio. Songs you might not have heard for a long time, if ever at all. And they're all brilliant as well. And it's all tied together by me. I've recorded hundreds of links introducing songs, so you're going to get the real feeling that I'm broadcasting live 24 hours a day. I soft-launched the station to the VRP VIPs, the people who signed up to the newsletter, and I've had some fantastic feedback so far. So please, please, please do give it a listen. I'm going to post a link so you can listen online in the description of this episode, so please give it a click and save the link, bookmark it, whatever it is, give it a good long listen and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you anyway, and I really want to create a radio station that complements this growing VRP Rocks community. I'll also post a link to listen on the VRP Rocks social pages and pin it to the top as well, so if you ever forget the link or lose it or whatever... Just go to Facebook or Twitter, search for VRP Rocks, and it'll be pinned at the top of the page on there. Please, please, please go on and give it a listen. Also, a quick thank you to Simon Foteau, another long-time listener. Simon first messaged me a few years ago now. Well, Simon very kindly left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and a a great review as well. He said, Very cool podcast for rockers and real music fans. Keep it up. Loving it here in Sutton, Quebec, Canada. It's amazing to get all these reviews from around the world. As Recently we said there was Denmark and Finland and Australia and things like that. So thank you to Simon and to everyone who has left a review recently as well. If you haven't yet, please do, even if it's just a click on the five stars button. It makes a real big difference to the podcast and makes places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever app that you use start to show it to other people in their feeds too. And It helps to spread the word and the main thing helps to keep Classic Rock alive. Right then, back to today's guest, and it's the wonderful Jack Cassidy, a man who played on, well, legendary tracks like Somebody to Love and White Rabbit during his time with Jefferson Airplane. In this extensive interview, he talks about the early days, how he met and first worked with Yorma Kalkinen when they were young teenagers. He talks about joining Jefferson Airplane. He talks about the band's first lead singer, who was replaced by Grace Slick. There's reminiscing about the records. He talks about what it was like to play at Woodstock in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and, very excitingly for me, how he came to play on one of Jimi Hendrix's most iconic songs, Voodoo Child. Yes, he, Jimmy and Steve Winwood were in the studio when that song came along and he was there to cut it. So you're going to hear all about that too. It's a fascinating journey that Jack takes us on. And as I said earlier, at 79 years of age, he shows no signs of stopping with more road shows booked with Yorma Kalkinen and Hot Tuna. So here you go. I hope you enjoy my chat with Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Jefferson Airplane and hot tuna bass player, Jack Cassidy. Um so let's let's start with with you and Norman and obviously he's just phoned you. Um you, you said that you were 14, he was 16. So so how did you guys meet and and, and what was the first band
1: you played in let's, let's let's go back to the early days. Well, you know, your kids in high school, your kids in high school, you know, and, and certainly back and this is 1950. 58. This wasn't a vocation our parents envisioned for us. <laughs> you know, if I, you have know, his parents' father was in the state department, his mother was a teacher, and mine my parents uh, doctors, dentists, and lawyers. but they all loved music, you know, everybody loved music, and I have to say for both of our families that they all encouraged our our interest in the in the art. so uh it was really quite quite interesting uh, in the real world, I'm finishing out. Junior high, what was then junior high school, and, and I'm just turning fourteen, and you are finishing out high school. It's turning seventeen, you know. And we met through my older brother, Charles Cassidy, who was a record collector, uh, and we all collected a lot of music. Now, as precursor to that, my father was a a dentist, but but his his uh, hobby was a, he was an audiophile, so he built hi fi as they call it in the 50s amplifiers in the 50s uh, and collected music and, and when he was in college the late 20s you know he had a, he liked a lot of the jazz bands that were boy on so he belonged to what was called the American Jazz Society so you know at 11 or 12 years old I was listening to a lot of, of jazz music uh, big Spider Beck and and the and, and Morton and uh, really interesting players out of the late 20s but in any case, we—you we, always started playing guitar and, and singing songs, and and I was playing guitar. I started playing guitar at twelve in nineteen fifty-six. Uh, again, uh, through my father up in the attic, as an eleven-year-old, I found a Washburn guitar, nylon string guitar, a couple of strings missing, and started playing around on that and thinking that my parents knew not anything about it. You know, of course, you're <laughs> eleven years old. You know, good luck. And uh and maybe not today, but then. And so that guitar disappeared. And at, at Christmas 1956, uh, I had a younger brother, and an older brother, and we all ran down the stairs to the tree and all that kind of stuff. And I looked around. It was a little po-faced, you know, not not too many boxes for Jack. And then uh, there was an envelope on the tree, and it said, Dear Jack, this entitles you to... Uh, uh, 12 guitar lessons uh and we took that guitar it was should it, it was supposed to be ready for christmas but it's not we and we're having a strong but steel strings uh and uh and basically they they heard me playing around and without missing a beat they got me off on the right foot i, I, I had a guitar instructor and I, I learned right away about good hand positioning and and all of that kind of stuff even though i was playing as, Songs from the Gibson book, of which I have right over there in my library. Oh,
0: wow, still, <laughs> uh,
1: yes, it is. And uh, that's another story. And and uh, you know, learning songs like "Peg of My Heart" and things like that. You know, and all the the correct, uh, uh plectrum techniques and all right. of that. But I, uh, you know, at the time I was began to listen to a lot of rockabilly, a, a lot of Gene Vincent and, and uh, Carl Perkins and and. and things coming up out of the country rock world because i'm in washington dc which is an artificial designation of a 10 mile diamond in between maryland and virginia you're in the south basically so in that environment the right place at the right time you know um and i were in junior high school high school and we got together and, and played and we played uh johnny cash stuff and and uh Mostly sort of rock and Billy stuff uh, at the time, mm. um, and then that the, the following year he he went uh, off to uh, out College, and that's where he met Ian Buchanan and learned how to approach the acoustic guitar instead of d- just strumming it for songs. You know, uh, when he came back a year later, after we had our little high school band called the Triumphs, you know, and we and, and we played that late '58, it was a sea change for him because he came back with intact songs played intricately with it with a bass on the thumb melody and singing and melding that all together into an intricate form you know like a jolly roll morton at the piano and uh i just thought that was just just terrific and so as he progressed on in in being three years older let me point out it was interesting that in the normal world a kid that's 14, 13, 14 years old, and then a 17, 18-year-old guy wouldn't normally be hanging out together. <laughs> but the music brought us together,
0: yeah.
1: and there was never an issue. So as we kept in touch, in the beginning of 1960, late 50s and 60s, I also started getting into, interested in listening to a lot of jazz. And, and every single major jazz player, Roland Kirk and Nusef Stigge and Further to that education was the Howard Theater, which was a sister theater to the Apollo in the late in 57, 58, 59. Right when they were at their peak, and I went down dollar fifteen in the afternoon, and one of my buddies or by myself and uh, saw Little Richard, I saw Fats Domino, saw the coasters, I saw Ray Charles many times, Bobby Blue Bland, Jackie Wilson, all these. Great singers and players that came up through the D.C. area on a on a, on a on a on a circuit, and so I was fortunate enough to just see all those greats in person. And most of all, the jazz guys. All the clubs were small, so you got to park yourself right there in front of these guys. I got to hear Charles Mingus play the bass. I wasn't interested in the bass yet at that mm-hmm. point. I was playing guitar, but but still, I guess uh, what was really embedded in me was. Was the tone of the instrument? What got me to listen to uh, Eric Dolphy was his bass clarinet playing. The tone that he got out of that instrument was just unbelievable. I'm talking in front of the instrument, listening to it, not on record. And where he'd been known for, for for his dexterity on the instrument, when you heard him in person, you realize that those all those notes came out of the fact of the way he made his the tone he got out of the instrument and uh that always stayed with me and impressed me uh, throughout my whole career
0: incredible incredible so you mentioned obviously you started with the guitar and and later on when you joined Yoma in San Francisco you were playing bass by that point so so when did the transition happen when did you pick up the bass and, and decide to, to give that a go
1: college and i and i'm i'm finishing out high school and around about the next last year i'm 16 that's uh, i'd been playing in in a club circuit in in washington and then there were so many clubs to play the rendezvous that you are and i played when we opened up to link ray and all all that kind of really edgy stuff going on coming out of the rockabilly world and then there was regular country clubs and gigs bluegrass and everything when I was I play guitar. I, I moved around. There was a many different bands that musicians would move around in within the within a band. You, you everybody knew everybody that was, that was playing and whatnot. I was, I was one of the younger guys picking up as much stuff as I could. One, one. I think the summer when I turned sixteen, the beginning of the summer, just the school was was letting out. There were summer gigs to get, you know. And one of the summer gigs was a. Uh, on the circle line, this little uh, ferry boat that went back and forth between the Washington side and over in the Virginia side. I think of a four-week gig that came up for Danny Gatton and he was putting the band together. And he called me, I said, listen, Jack, I'm stuck and my bass player is ill, he's in the hospital. Do you know anybody who's playing bass? Yeah. And I said, no, I don't know. And don't forget, bass players, electric bass players mm-hmm. were few and far between, everything stand-up bass. It was just this changeover was starting to happen. So anyway, I s- I said no. I don't. I, I don't. Don't know a guy right now. It, it, when Yorm and I played together, we didn't have a bass player. We had a guy, a- another guy, uh, Mike Honeycutt, who used to turn it to the A string, D string, uh, E string down a couple of <laughs> uh, a couple of notes, you know, in order to play, you know, kind of like a baritone bass. So he called me back. and says, "Listen, Jack." Why don't you do the gig? It pays good. It's hundred fifteen bucks a week. Now in nineteen fifty, nineteen sixty, that was a lot of money when when gasoline was nineteen and twenty cents, <laughs> twenty nine cents a gallon. Yeah. So I said, listen, I don't know anything about the bass. And of course, and then the classic, the classic line came up. You know, Jack, how hard can it be? It's only got four strings. So I took the gig and borrowed uh, Ernie's bass, and that was the new precision bass that come out. With a single offset pickup center, and I played it, and I played the gig, and I, you know, I just fell in love with that tonal range in the instrument, and you know, uh, it, it it was a watershed moment for me.
0: Incredible stuff! Incredible history! I love hearing all this sort of stuff. And um, just to move on slightly, then obviously you did join Yoma in San Francisco, and he, yes, I think he, yeah. he famously said oh, that um, when,
1: that, yeah, at the end of that period, sixty and sixty-five, I was talking to some friends a banjo player a friend of mine uh, bob linder and yorman i called him we all got on the phones and because i hadn't seen him he moved out to west coast so i hadn't seen him in a year half a few years maybe. and uh what are you doing now and, and and he says oh i'm teaching music and playing gigs and all that he says i just joined the, joined a band i said what he says yeah it's a folk rock band this is august or maybe it's i think and of all he says yeah just a couple of weeks ago and I said you what you're the purest and uh uh and so he says yeah and he says it's really great we we uh, it's really crazy bunch of people and he says we've got a manager that promises to pay us $50 a week whether we work or not and uh, Whoa. <laughs> so in any case you know I I'd heard a little bit about this uh, a scene out in San Francisco but there was very little from from the Printed, you got and whatnot, you know, it wasn't anything like it, it is in, in recent history. So uh, you just heard rumors and things, you know, but the music scene in Washington was very static for me. So I was kind of like, uh, I was frustrated. I, I, I didn't have a, a real fresh musical outlet on anything. So well, I was primed and ready for this. So he said, Listen, he says, um, why don't you uh, let me talk to the guys? And he, he but first, he asked me. He said, he said, "So, what are you doing?" I said, "I'm doing the usual—playing guitar, and playing bass and bands—and I'm going to school, I'm keeping out of the army." And uh, uh, and he says, "You play the bass?" I said, "Yeah, I play." He says, "Are you any good?" I said, oh, "I don't know." Uh, and so, uh, so he called back and he says, "Listen, we sent a plane ticket out." This is in September, uh, 1965. The band was formed in August with Marty Ballon, Paul Camp. Uh, are and Signe Tolley Anderson uh, on, on vocals and the bass player that I replaced. So I came out on October 16th and we rehearsed a little bit and played, uh, I think, Harmon Gymnasium on October 16th. I came out before that, uh, and uh, it was my first plane plight brought out. And I came out without a bass because in the gig that I had earlier uh, – gig kind of gig six nights a week he left your bass on the stand or something you know because he played five sets a night forty one, twenty 20 off show on sunday afternoon too and any in case it got ripped off that was that beautiful 1960 concentric oh, pop no. uh fender jazz bass <laughs> you know and so now it's 1965 so i borrowed the other guy's bass and i got the gig so went down to saturday and shaping and. and the, San Francisco and bought the new Fender Jazz Base, which I wasn't happy with because they changed the pot configuration instead of tone volume, tone volume, where you control the, the mix in subtle ways between the two pickups. They had two volumes and a tone to kind of mix, but it was really uh, didn't make any sense. So, anyway, not long after I messed around with that and, and, and I took a wanted a deeper sound out of the, the instrument to add to that. So I took a precision pickup, butted it up against the neck, and then I went and bought three concentric pots and put them in there, drilled uh, another hole, and put in there, wired them up so I could mix those three pickups any way I wanted to. Um, and that's that's the instrument that I used on the first uh, three Jefferson airplane helm. It takes off uh, a serrealistic pillow. And uh, after baiting at Baxter's,
0: um, and as you said, uh, the original lineup uh, had seen you as, as the vocalist, but she was replaced by Grace. So, what was your? Oh, was it?
1: Exactly, what was that? it? I was a whole year and some later. So, we had made a, a whole first album. Oh. So, your airplane takes off and done it. And and Sydney was great in in a lot of ways. She she was a, a pro all the way, uh, but in the vocal placement. Of this three-part harmony, which Paul loved, and he was a big fan of the Weavers and whatnot. So you know, you see your factions in the band, and so he he always wanted a, a female singer in band between Marty, who had a, his own solo career in the early sixties. Marty did, and as he got into this whole folk boil at the time, so she worked really well within that that combination, and she had a much lower range to her vocal. Actually, you. Marty took all the high stuff. She was in the middle, and Paul had the stuff to the side. So (laughs) those harmonies really work well. If you listen to it on our first first album, it's really interesting, very smooth stuff that she did. And then, of course, um, uh, later on, when she went to raise a family and leave the band, um, we looked around the other local bands in San Francisco, um, and there were a lot of local bands. That was what was great. So, we found uh, there was another band called The Great Society, and and Grace was in that band. And we all knew each other. We all listened to each other's shows. Nobody was working that much. So, if you weren't working, you were listening to whoever else was playing around in town. That's the way it was. And that was what was neat. I was used to the East Coast. It was really cutthroat, you know, a a lot more uh, in the band uh, world. you know, a leader side made a lot of hiring and firing and stuff. But on the West Coast, here I found a situation where bands would form together, nobody in their right mind if they were gonna form a classic band together, it you know, would, would pick the variety of musicians from a variety of backgrounds that ended up playing together in Mar- in <laughs> uh, in San Francisco. And that was that was the strength of it. You know, I think Paul coming from different background. The drummer, Skip Spence, wasn't even playing drums. He was a guitar player, and and, and Marty liked the way he played drums. And for a first year, he played drums, and then he was replaced right uh, soon after when Signe left with when, when Spencer Dryden. It, it was a fascinating time for me because here I'm thrown into this where even if we're doing so-called cover songs, we're mandated to do them our own way and our own approach and find a different approach and everybody responsible for what they do so i'm responsible writing all my stuff writing all of the bass influence in the, the song and, and working to um, create a create a different overall sound from all the parts and that's it was a it was a terrific time but as far as players go you know we weren't that young i was the youngest guy in the band and i was already 20, already 21 So twenty uh, one. It, it was uh, in the in the same grouping. You had uh, the Charlatans, which later on was you know became uh, you know Dan Hicks and the Hot Lakes, where, where it grew out of that one. But the Charlatans really started. Charlatans really started this, the whole San Francisco scene, pretty much in there. And then to follow up with the Warlocks, we turned into the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. Big Brother and Holding Company and then later on Janice joined Big Brother and Holding Company and the the, uh, the fifth band was Quicksilver Messenger Service. Uh, it was a fascinating time and, and, and perfect timing for Jack. These things I wanted to do on a bass, I, I had no outlet and now I had songs and that outlet to do it on. You know? and, and really as it as it developed over the next few years, you know, it, we came up with some pretty wacky stuff. But <laughs> it, you know, as far as we we're going to commercially, we had you know, White Rabbit and Somebody Love were the biggest of great songs. But the other stuff that we built around it was really trying to go a lot of different directions and use a lot of these influences. And that's, I think, was the strength of the band and also the bedrock of the brevity of the band as well, because mm-hmm. we're all young, we're all learning our, our craft and going in different directions. Everybody wrote songs, and there's only so much room in one big band for that. So, Later on, it ran its course from 1965 to seventy-two, more or less. And around 1970, you and I already started putting the stuff that we worked on together for all along into an entity called Hot Tuna. Then there was just so much time to get all that done, and we stepped back from Jefferson Airplane. and And those guys, Paul, did individual sessions that we all, you know, did his own records, and we all played on them. You know, we weren't at each other's throat or anything. And they, I remember Paul calling me on, saying, Do you mind if I use the word Jefferson and Jefferson Starship? Fine. Uh, and so they started that entity, which, as it turned out, sold far more records than Jefferson Airplane ever. But it was just a, a great creative period of, of time. And, and I look back on now, and now it seems like seven years of nothing. You know, there's a lot of stuff packed into that seven years, 1965 to 72.
0: And just touching on quickly, obviously the the pinnacle that that everybody still talks about today. It's it, you mentioned the, the two big singles, but the album itself, "Surrealistic Pillow," it's still um, held up as a classic. I mean, how do you feel looking back at that record in particular, uh, so so many years on, and and its legacy that it left behind?
1: Well, it's really interesting. But all the fifty years stuff coming up, and six years stuff coming up. You know, we've we, we've almost all the and purchased been put this material out in modern format and all that and and we've all had to listen back to a lot of that and you know there, there's stuff i hadn't listened to since i recorded it because mm-hmm. uh, not everything got played in person and of course like i said we only did that until 72 and then i never really played much of the airplane stuff as i revisited this stuff lately like i was saying i was i was amazed at how uh, how well we did everything I, i'm and Jefferson Airplane Takes Off, 1966 is when we recorded that. And of course, to those artists out there in the world, we recorded that album in four days. Oh. And you walked in the studio, set up your amps, and put the mics up, and you played it. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was there was no Pro Tools to fix them up, you know? Well. And, uh, and so... I was, we really developed in some, some pretty catchy arrangements, you know, that the Young and I looked at as we were going over some of this stuff again, and we started laughing. And you no, know, we could play that shit today, you know, God, it's so complicated. And, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, when you go a career is a long time. We can, you don't listen to your own stuff. If you, if you're on the inside, we're on this side of the curtain, you're on the yeah. others. You don't, you don't think about it. There are compliments you're proud of and whatnot. But, uh, I don't listen back to to old live recordings or anything
2: like that.
0: <laughs> and if you don't mind me going back a few years again, um, I have to ask you about Woodstock because obviously it's become one of the the, the biggest cultural events of the 20th century. But um, what's your memories from from that time? Then I mean, from that day itself, but but the, the lead up to it because nobody expected it to be what it became.
1: Well, there there was a there was an expectation, but it was all packed within about a three day period before. And as you, as you saw, you you heard there was going to be a big affair at a big field, and uh, you know those those were new events. Those kinds of events hadn't happened. Now we had started to do that in San Francisco within the being and and playing in Goldmead Park, where more and more people started to show up, and you saw that. But this, of course, Woodstock was a whole other area. This wasn't like little San Francisco and their little little hippy dippy thing. This was. The East Coast, the brick world, you know, and and um, I think the biggest impact was we looked around as we saw it mushroom because we were stuck in a little Holiday a hotel down the road in Kingston, waiting for for you know the three day event, waiting to to get your slot to get in and to get into the event, and then we saw on on, on TV, of course, there's only three channels. So. <laughs> you know, rabbit-eared antenna, easy going around like this and you hope. And so uh, we see uh, the patrol out, you know, dealing with all the traffic on the streets and realizing uh, that that all this stuff that had been building up, starting out perhaps in San Francisco and escalating out in various towns throughout the United States, but particularly the East Coast concentration of the population, that's the big thing. Um, and as, it, uh, you know, you've got a chunk, good chunk of that East Coast population just moving one direction at one time, you've got traffic. And that's what happened. And we watched it sort of mushroom up into this event. Of course, into what we viewed as the straight world at the time and the TV reporting and whatnot, it was, it was like the aliens have landed. And so... uh <laughs> You know, you, you expected the, the National Guard to be called out, you know, to bring the, the, the area around, but it didn't quite work out that way. But it all worked out fairly peacefully. There, nobody had expectations and scenarios of galore like they do today with any event because so much has happened over a period of time. You know, you had your concerts in amphitheaters, and you had park concerts and things like that, but nothing like this. So as it began to mushroom up, and see how the a great mass of humanity was moving up into this one area, this one farmers field, um, it was quite phenomenal. And then we had to get there. So we thought we looked at each other. And thought we got to get in the gig, or we're never getting in it. And some people could fly with the helicopters and all that. We we had to transportation of choice, I think, was an LTD station wagon for bands you know, wow. uh, <laughs> and a state car for you. guys. A big square open back thing where you could fit a, you know, six people in plus all your guitar. Jorm and I like to travel in that fashion because we always wanted to, and we always had our guitar with us at all times. And I think New and Grace and, and Spencer, why not? They came into a helicopter. I'm not sure. In any case, We had to find a pathway into the stage and like any farmer's field, you know, there's access road for tractors and whatnot, you know, in in, in big field areas. And at the corner end of this one in the field was where the stage was built. And so already when we went in there, because we were supposed to play Saturday night, I think it started Thursday I'm not sure. In any case, Saturday night. So we went in there early Saturday uh, morning and it was already packed. There was already cars in every one of these little roads, cars on both sides, and just a narrow little, what was left in the middle to get in. And so uh, I remember a good part of the ride in, many of those cars to the left and right lost trim alongside. That's <laughs> in the days when you had chrome trim on a car. <laughs> and uh, so we got into the site and realized we were lucky to get in, period. So, And then, of course, there was a mix of, Of good weather, bad weather, you know, things working, things not working, and and all of that. But everybody working furiously, you know, so much of this that had been built up in the artistic community that happened out in San Francisco as well, where, where you had people in the electronics world and aerospace world coming out of that industry working with amplification to make PA systems, you know, work well. And as you had, various artistic people practicing their endeavors. You have people sewing and making clothes and people constructing things like stages and and all working in this one community, and that's what hit everybody. When we got in there, we looked at saw all those people. They thought, my God. And later on, we were told, around 300,000 of us. And it was really uh, them against us, sort of. Uh, it's still strange to anybody in a Midwestern town was if you walked around with long hair on, you know. So, it was a, really a, a unique moment in history and and I'm glad I'm part of
0: it. Absolutely. It's, it's it's historic. Absolutely. We
1: played about, I mean, we played the Nebworth Festival, you know, we played, uh, uh, Island Man, we played, you know, we went over later on, you and I played, we played them as Jefferson Airplane as Hot Tuna and then we played Hyde Park uh, and, you know, did you? Know, I saw the the European version of that, and of course, it's all you know. It it all started in Europe anyway. I mean, you know, all the gathering of people for festivals, and you know, the, uh, uh, the enjoyment of great gobs and groups of people getting together to celebrate whatever it is.
0: Um, just one little thing to touch on as well, if you don't mind. Um, Jimi Hendrix, obviously an absolute legend. Is it the famous story of yourself and was it Steve Winwood who were jamming together and, and along came Voodoo Child? Is that correct?
1: Yes, and and you, you people use the word jam loosely as if you you know all, all smoked smoked a weed and just started playing together, but you know. <laughs> musicians look for opportunities to play with each other and we really enjoy the opportunity Mitch Mitchell is my buddy and friend I just love the way he played I loved his uh, in my opinion for what it's worth in that early period of, of Jimmy with Mitch Mitchell I think that's what gave the band a different kind of swing than if he had had a hard rock drummer so to speak like he had later on or just a rhythm and blues drummer or something you know I think that's what gave a different sound on it. And the, you know, So I, I, Mitch and I got along great. And there's lots of stories. I can tell you about that some other time. And with the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco, Mitch and I and Jimmy playing and doing some Jimmy. But in this sense, he was making a record. So uh, I I, got, I was fortunate enough to, to play a cut on the record with, with Steve Winwood. I love Steve. I mean... I've got his single upstairs in my record collection that I bought then. I mean, you know, just phenomenal. Yeah, give me some love. And it just, when when we heard that, that was the kind of song that Steve Winwood did, it truly was like an American icon song of of going down the road in your convertible, you know, and and listening to that song blaring out of your radio like like crazy. You know, it was... It really set the tone in the time. It was just phenomenal, in any case. And then uh, Jimmy and I and, and he invited us over. We had played played what's I done? The Dick Cavett's show, uh, early a uh, TV show, uh, Jefferson Airplane. And then we, we went over to a club as one of the day, like I said earlier, you and I carried I carried my bass, he curated his guitar around all the time. That's what you get to when you yawn. And uh uh and we heard because uh, we taped the show early at eight o'clock or something. And uh, so, you know, and everything starts up in New York late, of course. And we heard that Traffic was doing their I think I believe I uh, was their first if not first shows, their first tour over in the United States. And and we'd had their records. Everybody read each other's records and stuff, you know. Uh, if I can interject, that was exciting about the time everybody checked each other out, and and I think in a very healthy way was spurred on by the people's developments in their own band, and that's what like, brings me back to bands. The bands like the Rolling Stones and bands like like uh, Traffic and bands like Jimmy Hendrix and bands that, that that had different things going on within that band. Uh, bands like Cream where you heard the personalities, of the individual players at work in hand, you know? Uh, and so we, um, heard that the traffic was playing at Steve Paul's scene, which was a little half underground club in, in New York at the time. One of those typical friendly clubs, you know, where there's a host in front of the bandstand, things like that, you know, and it just, you know, and, uh, and so we went over to hear him uh, and Jimmy came in and we had known Jimmy from, he came in late at night, I think uh, in 11 or something. We had known him from, uh, you know, early days at Fillmore and playing around and doing so much stuff together. And so uh, uh, after talking and listening to their set and being wowed by their set, and then he invited who, whoever wanted to back over because to, he took a break from McCoy. And He had just taken control of it pretty much with the sessions from Chas Chandler, and, and so the sessions were probably annoyingly loose to other band members. But, <laughs> but uh, in any case, so I don't know, 17 or 15 of us were all over there, you know, packing up the vocal booths and doing what you do, you know, when you're doing such nonsense. And we listened to him work on overdubs and some tracks on the album, and whatnot, and then I think about six in the morning or something, he said, let's play a song, let's play a blues. So he worked out the change, and we worked the changes out. This wasn't a jam-jam, I mean, but, you know, he worked out the, the layout of the song and whatnot and where it's going to go. Uh, uh Well, we didn't know where it was going to go exactly, but we did that, and we did a half a take. I think it broke a string, and then we did the full take. Uh, yeah. uh And and I had a ball, but the, I've been asked what it was like to play with Jimmy, and, and it was it was great. He wanted to play. He was a musician. He wanted to get down and play. So it, it wasn't, uh, you know, when you when you do that, you just want to do your job and do it well. But but at the same time, you want to draw up each other. So Jimmy and I could look into each other's eyes, and there was there was just nothing but let's do some play and so in, in that way it was absolutely normal God, like any other you know all, all the the hoo-ha that comes from the imagery of the stuff he was trying to shed from him anyway because he wanted to get down and play great player great songwriter and he I think if he had lived we would have heard him develop a lot more in a lot, a lot more different directions uh, but uh, I think uh, soon after that there was a certain amount of an albatross around his neck with all that went hoopla that went along with with what people perceived as who he was and uh, that happened to a lot of to all of us you know in Lon- Lon- a lot of senses. but it was fun it was great to do and it was great later on because when he played town at, played in town at winterland next year or something you know we we had a hook i had a hook he could invite me on stage i had something to play you know you know something we knew we could and uh so I was real happy about that, you know, it played something besides Red House, you know. And so uh, then uh, I think it was about 7.30 in the morning and we looked at each other, jumped in the station wagon, piled a lot of stuff in there and drove to Washington, D.C. because we had the gig next night. That's what you do when you're young.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we drove, you know, the 250 miles down to D.C., our hometown, and played down there. As you do, as you do. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure we didn't get a, a a one minute sleep, you know, for, <laughs> until the following night. Overrated sleep's overrated
0: when you're young, definitely. Um, okay. And just one last thing to touch on: just um, what's your what's your memories and recollections of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction? Because obviously, when you were inducted in '96, it was it was fairly uh, a new thing, and and a lot of the, the huge, amazing bands were going in at that time. So, so what's your memories and recollections of that time?
1: Well, that's a, it's a great honor, you know. I I want to. I often tell this story, but my dear sweet late wife, Diana, who's English, by the way, Dalfour, uh, who had uh, been over here since the early 70s, she, uh, I, we were getting that. And I said, you know, and I was fidgeting around about it and all that. And, and she said, Jack, what's wrong? She said, gee, I, you know, it's so odd, you know, the, these kinds of awards and things. And she says, you know, Jack, she she had been married to a movie director before he passed on, and she uh, said, "You know, you must remember, it's a great thing to be honored by your contemporary." She said, "Just relax, enjoy it." You know, she said, "You, it, it's, it, it's hard to make." as She used to put it all the time hard to make your mark on the wall. She said, "You've made a mark, and and you'll make other marks on the wall." But to enjoy this, go out there and and do it. So we did, and so it was, a, it was, a, it was. A, like, An honor to me. You know, there's a lot of stuff about people, you know, that aren't involved with it, always saying, you know, how uh, translucent all these honors are and things like that. But uh, I figure I'll, I'll take it as it came and be grateful that I've got it.
0: Absolutely. And just to finish off, you mentioned that uh, yourself and Yoma. obviously you've been friends for such a long time now and it goes back and y- you're still touring and playing together. So what's the plans for, for 2024 between you?
1: Well, we have a lot of, of, of plans. We we put to bed pretty much the electric guitar playing version of Hot Tuna this last year with a, a number of shows. Uh partly because sonically it was beating us up uh on the road like that after a period of time and we've always we've actually started out our the combination of, of bara and jack has hot tuna acoustically and we figured that's got long legs for us uh uh and right now it's it's got more challenges I've got the the new bases I'm playing that are true acoustic instruments URM has really just leaps and bounds over the last 23 years of teaching, and, 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 and uh, I have participated in that as well, uh, added so much more material. We're having a lot of fun investigating a lot of different material uh, uh, and just expanding the knowledge of the instrument itself. Uh, yeah, and so uh, in the acoustic world, that that really are the, are the challenges, up for us. Like I say, it's not playing unplugged; it's it's the real deal. So uh, we've got three tours lined up: uh, July, September, and then next December. We just got the up for next December or a couple of days ago. So we'll uh we'll uh look forward to doing that lovely stuff well
0: Jack it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and, and thank you so much for showing me your bass guitars as well they're wonderful
1: well thank you very much for having me There's there's a ton of fun there you go Jack
0: Cassidy there the third Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee on the show in the last five episodes all the big names speak to VRP Rocks well that's it for this week's episode then thank you so much for listening to this and make sure you click on the link in the description or if that won't let you kind of click from it straight away just copy the link into your internet And give VRP Rocks Radio a try. You're not going to regret it. Some brilliant music from the 60s, 70s and 80s that you won't have heard on the radio in a long time. It's not like any usual classic rock station. Please give VRP Rocks Radio a try. Also, of course, make sure to subscribe to this podcast, VRP Rocks, on your podcast app so you get all the future episodes. They're released every single Monday. There's big-name classic rock stars on every single one. Leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on whatever podcast app you use. It makes a big difference. And check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well, and the social media channels too. Everywhere, just search for VRP Rocks. But that's it for me then this week and this week's episode. So until next time, take care.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.